0: Welcome back everyone to another episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. Today we're going to be looking at various instances of body modification. Tattooing is probably the best known and most common form of body modification that is done today. In most instances in the modern world it has been done voluntarily and the evidence is clear that it's an extremely ancient practice. There are figurines from the Paleolithic period in Europe and Western Asia that have markings that may indicate tattoos, or they could have been body painting. It's very hard to tell, of course. But we do have a very early example of a person who was preserved through a natural process, and this is the individual who's called the Iceman in the U.S., in europe where he was found he's known as utzi after a particular area of the alps on the border of italy and austria where he was found in the early 90s he was preserved by being frozen in a glacier and on his skin are a number of markings which are sort of halfway between tattooing and scarification the theory is that they might have been therapeutic in nature they are all located right over joints An x-ray inspection of these joints reveals that he suffered from arthritis. This is very similar to concepts of using things like acupuncture against these kinds of problems. They have discovered tattooed bodies preserved in a very similar way for the culture known as the Scythians. These are mummies produced by arctic permafrost found in tombs at a site called Pazirik in Siberia. These tombs are known as kurgans and date to approximately the 4th and 3rd centuries BC. There are tattoos on these mummies of animals such as deer and elk and mountain goats, but also creatures, things that very closely resemble the later mythological monsters known as griffins. These depictions might have been purely decorative, connected to the display of status, but also possibly having totemistic implications as a sort of familiar or spirit animal. We have evidence that tattooing was connected to a variety of religious rituals, particularly in the Near East. That may have been the reason for the prohibition of tattooing mentioned in the book of Leviticus to set the Israelites apart from the people living around them. The practice is known for Egypt as well, where mummies have been discovered, both male and female, that have tattoos of animals such as baboons, but also sacred images such as eyes or the scarab beetle. And the Greek historian Herodotus, in his section on Egypt and its culture and history, speaks of a shrine of asylum where people who were fleeing, often servants and slaves fleeing their masters, would be marked with stigmata hiera or holy marks in Greek, and then could not be harmed. Now, this does relate to how Greeks and Romans viewed tattooing from the standpoint of status, because there's many cultures all over the world where tattooing actually denotes a high-status individual. One example is Polynesian culture. The very word tattoo is a Polynesian term that was brought into Western languages after European exploration of the Pacific in the 18th century. We also have the aforementioned Scythians and also the Thracians from southeastern Europe, Bodily decoration was also favored by some Central and Northern European tribes, although it's not always easy to tell the difference between tattooing with needle and ink based on soot, which is what we see in the other ancient instances, from actual body painting with various pigments and dyes. For example, Julius Caesar in the Gallic Wars describes some of the Gallic warriors and how they appeared to be colored like glass, uses the Latin term vitrum, which has caused some controversy, may actually relate to pigments derived from copper sulfate instead. For the British Isles, various pigments such as the blue dye woad, plant-based dye, especially among the tribes from what is now Scotland, the Caledonians, called Picti or Painted People by the Romans. However, woad may also have been used as an antiseptic to clean wounds. However, despite being in such close proximity to these other cultures... The Greeks and the Romans had the opposite attitude. To them, tattooing was symbolic of slavery. We have the text of a curse that mentions tattooing. This is on a sheet of papyrus from Egypt and is dated to approximately 300 BC, which would be the Hellenistic period of ancient Egypt. The curse states that the person targeted by it will experience the torments of hell because of the tattooing. It says, I will tattoo you with the white-tusked boar. Sometimes, on occasion, the story told in Herodotus of how the wars between the Greeks and the Persians first got underway talks about an individual named Histiaeus from the Greek city of Miletus on the coast of what is now Turkey, who sent a message to his son-in-law Aristagoras telling him to revolt from the Persians. Histiaeus knew he had to keep the message secret or the plot would fail, so he came up with an intriguing method where he shaved the head of a slave Tattooed the message, telling Aristagoras to revolt onto the scalp of the slave, waited for the man's hair to grow back, and then sent him to Aristagoras with the message, shave the slave's head upon arrival. This was done, and the revolt occurred. In the long run, it failed, but because Greeks of the mainland, like the Athenians, had assisted the rebels, this led King Darius of Persia to send an attack force against the Greek mainland, the First Persian War. Now that Persian expedition was defeated at Marathon, but 10 years later, Darius' son Xerxes led a much larger invasion of the Greek mainland. He not only dispatched a fleet, he also personally led a massive Persian army in a march from Anatolia to Greece. This involved crossing the Hellespont between Asia and Europe. Xerxes ordered the construction of a pontoon bridge, But it was destroyed by a storm, and Xerxes was so furious that he ordered his priests to punish the Hellespont Strait by whipping it, by throwing shackles into the water, and according to Herodotus, also tattooing a message on the water. We're not really sure how this might have been accomplished, but they were instructed to scold the waters as they did this, calling them cruel and stating that their master Xerxes was going to cross over them whether they liked it or not. After the Persians arrived in Greece, we have the famous last stand of the Spartans at Thermopylae. Actually, the Spartans were not the only Greeks who were left for that final engagement. In addition to King Leonidas and his 300 bodyguards, we also have soldiers from Thespiae and some Thebans. Now, the city of Thebes had officially Medized, which means it had taken the Persian side in the war. These Thebans were taken alive, while most of the other Greeks were cut down. And Xerxes, in his fury at these Greeks that he considered to be traitors, had them branded with the royal mark. And this, along with several other references to tattooing and branding among the Persians being used as punishment, have led scholars to consider that maybe the Greeks and Romans got their similar ideas about the practice from the Persians. In the mid-5th century BC, before the Peloponnesian War actually began, an island that was in alliance with Athens, called Samos, rebelled against the Athenians. The Athenians made a major effort to suppress this rebellion, and some stories indicate that it was done in a very brutal fashion. Plutarch's biography of the general and statesman Pericles of Athens states that the ringleaders of the rebellion were tied to stakes in the middle of the Samian town square, left exposed to the elements, not given food and water for several days, and then had their heads bashed in with clubs. The Samian prisoners of war were tattooed on their foreheads with the Owl of Athena. Late in the Peloponnesian War, after a failed Athenian attack on the Greek city of Syracuse on the island of Sicily, this time it was the turn of Athenian prisoners of war to be tattooed on the forehead with a horse, which was symbolic of Syracuse. Many times slaves in the Greek and Roman world were tattooed, for example, with statements on their forehead saying, I am a fugitive so that if they did escape, they'd be restored to their owners. Someone came to a sanctuary of the healing god Asclepius, most likely a slave who had achieved his freedom, trying to get his forehead tattoos removed, and according to a commemorative inscription posted at that same sanctuary, they tied a bandage around his head, and as he slept overnight, the god Asclepius miraculously transferred the tattoos from the flesh of his forehead onto the bandage. More earthly remedies were tried as well, judging from a medical text written by a physician named Aetius from the 6th century AD, which gives a procedure for removal of tattoos that involved caustic lime most likely a very painful experience to go through. Late in the period of the Roman Empire, tattooing was even done to soldiers. This was something that was ended legally by the first Christian Roman Emperor Constantine. He made it illegal to forcibly tattoo soldiers and convicts, and we'll come back to this later in terms of his justification. He said that the face was symbolic of man's purity and the fact that he was made in the image of God. Now, you may be familiar with Greek myths concerning a tribe of female warriors known as the Amazons. Nobody's really sure where the name comes from, but there was one etymology mentioned by a writer, often simply referred to as Justin, Marcus Justinus, that it came from the Greek Amazon without a breast. Think of terms like mastectomy coming from that Greek word. He reports a legend that the women of the tribe, while still children, would have their right breast cauterized so that it would never grow. This has come under heavy criticism from scholars today, who note that there's no depiction of an Amazon in art who's missing a breast. The name might actually be Persian and related to terms for warriors. However, female warriors from the steppes of Central Asia are well attested, not only in literary sources, but also from archaeology. So, the legend does seem to have some basis in fact, even if the idea of a missing breast was fallacious. In our coverage of ancient body modification, we also have to consider various things done to the genitalia of both men and women. What might be called female circumcision, or nowadays known as female genital mutilation, something which is still practiced. There's also some Greek and Roman medical writers that describe it as an Egyptian practice to remove the clitoris, part of the labia, and in some cases, even more drastic surgery. Male circumcision is first attested in Egypt as well. The god Ra in the Book of the Dead circumcises himself, and the resulting blood is used to create two guardian deities. Mummification provides evidence for male circumcision, although it is unclear from looking at female mummies whether we see signs of circumcision on them. There's a magical formula that was inscribed in a sarcophagus from Middle Kingdom Egypt, where a man is to be rubbed with something, it's not really very clear what the hieroglyph states, but something from an uncircumcised girl and also flakes of skin from an uncircumcised man. Since magical spells tend to use exotic ingredients, the implication is that it was hard to find uncircumcised women or men in Egypt. Some have proposed that it was related to hygiene and health. It's been proposed that the procedure was related to coming-of-age rituals, and for men, even a possible military context, where a Middle Kingdom text refers to a group of soldiers being circumcised. Note also the practice in the biblical traditions of the Israelites, where Joshua orders all of the men and boys who had been born in the wilderness after the Exodus and had not been circumcised to undergo the operation. Some 600,000 foreskins were removed and put into a pile known thereafter as Gilgal, the hill of foreskins, which I could go the rest of my life without visualizing. The significance of male circumcision for the Israelites, both as a religious symbol of the covenant, but also as a sign of identity, can also be seen in later periods of ancient history. To Greeks and to many Romans, male circumcision was an abhorrent practice. Judea came under the rule of Macedonian and Greek monarchs after the conquests of Alexander the Great. There was a major controversy over whether or not Jewish people could adopt Greek cultural practices. There was a sector of leadership and society in Jerusalem that wanted to do this. They were called the Hellenizers. And one aspect of male elite Greek culture was to do athletics. If you know anything about the ancient Olympics, the men who competed in the Olympics did it in the nude. The term gymnasium comes from the Greek word gymnos for naked. So a gymnasium is literally a place to go get naked. Well, if you were a circumcised man and you attempted to go to a gymnasium and engage in nude athletics, compared to the Greek men there who you were trying to blend with, you would stick out like a sore thumb, so to speak. So there are accounts, believe it or not, in the first book of Maccabees, for example, that because circumcision did not involve the complete removal of the foreskin, that they hung weights to extend what remained and make it look like they had never been circumcised. Well, the anger from the more conservative elements of society contributed to a rebellion led by the family known as the Maccabees against the ruler of the Seleucid kingdom, Antiochus IV. It is also possible that the revolt led by Bar Kokhba against Roman rule in the time of the Roman emperor Hadrian was due to a ban on circumcision declared by that emperor. When the Maccabees later established the Hasmonean dynasty, which became a client kingdom of the Romans. They did some military expansion, and they conquered the territory of a tribe just to their south, the Idumeans. that's related to the name Edom. And when they conquered the Idumeans, they forced them to adopt Judaism, which according to the historian Josephus, included forcible circumcision of all the men of the Idumean tribe. This conquest was carried out by John Hyrcanus, a Hasmonean king in 125 B.C., but interestingly enough, about a century later, someone of indumaean descent became the new ruler of Judea, and it was none other than Herod the Great. form of mutilation of male genitalia was castration, turning men into what are known in Greek as eunuchs. There was more than one version of this differing in severity, sometimes the removal of the penis, other times the removal of just the testicles, or sometimes the whole megilla. Herodotus states that Periander, a tyrant of Corinth and a really unsavory individual who, among other things, is accused of having committed necrophilia with his deceased wife, Melissa, he is said to have sent 300 boys from noble families of the island of Corsira across the Aegean Sea to Lydia in what is now southwestern Turkey to be castrated. They were meant as gifts to the king there, Alyattes, to become royal servants and slaves. However, these boys were saved by the people of Samos, an island where the ships from Corinth stopped along the way, who gave them shelter in a temple until their Corinthian guards gave up and the boys were able to be sent home. Now, eunuchs could actually, in some cultural contexts, rise to positions of power. It's referenced in China, particularly in the later part of the Han Dynasty, which was contemporary with the Roman Empire. There are accounts from the 4th century BC of a Persian royal eunuch named Bagoas, who became something like the vizier or prime minister for King Artaxerxes III, but then decided to get rid of that king, poison him in order to place that king's son on the throne as Artaxerxes IV, somebody who Begoas thought would be far more congenial to him. However, the story is he then poisoned Artaxerxes IV when he became difficult, brought in a cousin of that man and made him King Darius III of the Persians, and then at a later date wanted to get rid of Darius III, so once again prepared poison. Instead, Darius III discovered the plot and forced Begoas to drink the poison himself. All this happened right before Alexander the Great's invasion of the Persian Empire, and according to Plutarch's biography of Alexander, Alexander actually did accuse Bagoas of having arranged the assassination of his father, Philip II. The most famous eunuchs in Roman history are the Galli, which were priests of a goddess from Anatolia, or Asia Minor, known as Kibli, or the Great Mother. These were eunuch priests who who had actually castrated themselves. Castration was normally something done against a man's will, no matter what time in history it occurred. But they did this to themselves on the so-called Day of Blood, March 24th on the Roman calendar, in emulation of the myth of a lover of Kybele, a man known as Attus, who, driven insane from passion and desire, ended up removing his own genitalia. During the festival, the men who became galley mutilated themselves while they were engaged in frenzied dancing and the playing of tambourines and other raucous music. But we don't really see eunuchs rise to positions of political power until the early Byzantine period, where a number of eunuchs were known to be in very close positions of power to emperors, most likely because there was no way they were going to create a family dynasty of their own. It's said that a group of eunuchs assassinated a Gothic general named Aspar, who was attempting to be what you could call emperor-maker, putting his own candidates on the throne in Constantinople. It was not possible for him to seize the title of emperor, both because of his ethnicity, but also because he followed a type of Christian belief that had been declared heretical, called Arian Christianity. Eventually, he was taken down by a group of palace eunuchs, A fact that he probably did not want inscribed on his tombstone because assassinated by eunuchs is not the greatest capstone to a political and military career. Now, moving later into the Byzantine period, there was a strong focus upon the human face. I mentioned Constantine's statement when he outlawed the tattooing of the faces of certain people in society. Beginning in the 8th century AD, the Byzantine Empire was wracked by the controversy over iconoclasm over whether it was acceptable to have religious paintings. And the biggest defenders of the icons were monks. And there are stories of iconoclast emperors having obscene verses of Greek poetry forcibly tattooed on the foreheads of these recalcitrant monks. However, we've already covered tattooing today. What I'm leading up to here is a story of plastic surgery. This idea that the face represented the purity of the human soul meant that if you were somehow marked or damaged in the face, you could not hold a leadership position. There was an emperor, Justinian II, who became emperor in 685, and after 10 years of rule was deposed by a rebellion led by a man named Leontius. If you wanted to prevent someone from becoming a Byzantine emperor, or prevent a deposed emperor from regaining power, and you didn't want to go so far as execute them, you could mutilate their face. You could cut off their nose, their ears, or both. And that actually barred them from holding a position of power. You could also have the individual in question blinded, blinding where they would simply heat up a piece of metal, hold it next to the eyeballs, and melt them instantaneously. In the case of Justinian II, though, Leontius ordered that his nose be cut off, and he was exiled up north to the Crimea. However, Justinian II wasn't going to let something like that get in his way. It took time, but about a decade later in 705, with the help of Bulgar and Slavic troops, he was able to seize power back and rule for another six years in a second reign. So how did he get around the problem with his face, you may ask? Well, he had a fake nose made of gold, which he wore as a kind of prosthesis. So this is an early example of what would be called rhinoplasty. But his luck ran out in 711 when another rebel, Bardanes, seized power in Constantinople and was proclaimed emperor of Philippicus, and Justinian II's head was sent to him. No word on whether or not that gold nose was still attached to the head when it arrived. Well, after all that talk about violence being done to genitals, it's almost refreshing to talk about a simple nose removal. Thanks very much. Stay tuned for the next episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.